And uh, this little story, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from him. It's a, a marvelous woman, Ellie Sparks uh, is her name. At the time that she's speaking, she was living in Richmond, Virginia, and her congressman was House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. It's about six years ago. Uh, and, she, and her newspaper was the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and she said that when she joined this advocacy group called, in this case, Citizens Climate Lobby, she was suffering from climate trauma. She would read Bill McKibben's book, uh, Earth, and she would weep at home, and she would weep at work. And then she joins this organization, and 18 months later, she meets with uh, 20 congressional district offices, and... Um, her experience flips to sacred and profound. And so let me read just a little and uh, give people a flavor. Quote, our director, Mark Reynolds, likes to say we're betting the farm on relationships. Then he tells us we need to build relationships with members of Congress and editorial writers. Most of us volunteers have never done that before. What in the world does a relationship with a member of Congress look like? How do we connect with an editorial page editor? Some of us have found models for those relationships in other parts of our lives. Gary in Boston uses the model of a work relationship. Now, this is where she gets wild and marvelous. My relationship model is different. I adore romantic relationships, so I use romance as my model. That first meeting with an editorial writer, it's like a blind date, only you've decided beforehand you're going to marry this fellow. You're going to be sweet and interesting, not too intense. If it doesn't work out with the editor, you're going to marry one of his friends at the newspaper, the business editor, environment writer, city editor. Someone at this paper will find you interesting and compelling. It's just a matter of being persistent until you find the right connection. I'm going to skip a couple of paragraphs and get to the punchline. And as she writes, during our conference, I met 20 congressional offices. I met with many folks whose view of the world was very different than mine. Going into their offices was hard. I had to let go of a lot of emotional baggage. I could no longer judge them or hold hostility in my heart towards them. I had to let go of my fear of climate change and my fear that they wouldn't listen to me. I had to center myself in love. Releasing fear and centering in love, this is sacred and profound work. And for me, that uh, uh, that's a very clear example of uh, the divine feminine. And, and uh, I just love that particular excerpt from the chapter. I, I, I do, too, uh, because, you know, Sam, um, you know, no one gets more upset than me, um, I, I guess, and, you know, with everything going on. But uh, even I have come to the point where I realize, um, you know, yelling and shouting gets us nowhere. You know, I've come a lot more around to the idea that if we can't find common ground, at least – um, you know, love might be a little bit harder, but maybe common ground is a form of love. You know, there's all sorts yes. of uh, uh, type, types of love, actually. Um, you know, I think, you know, finding the common ground, a.k.a. love, uh, is how, uh, you know, we're going to fix things, I think. Uh, because I, I think so many of us really do want the same thing, even if we're on opposite sides of the aisle. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I another example from this particular organization. It's one of several that I coached, uh, the Citizens Climate Lobby. The last Congress, they enrolled 45 Republicans and 45 Democrats in the House of Representatives to join the House Climate Solutions Caucus, when four years ago you couldn't have gotten one Republican to put their name on anything with the word climate in the title. And so something extraordinary had to happen uh, to cause that kind of change. And when I coach groups um, uh, about a meeting with a member of Congress, a big part of the coaching is that part where you're really trying to listen. When the member of Congress maybe rejects what you're saying or opposes something that you're proposing, and you, you go to the level of, could you say more about that? Could you tell me why you think that is? I know it looks like you'll never support this, but what would it take to have you come on board? And in each one of those three cases, you then stop and listen and let them speak out and, and let them get whatever it is that's inside to, to the point where you might, in fact, find the common ground that didn't seem to be there at first. Yeah. Well, you, you know, as strange as this may seem, um, you know who uh, was a good teacher for me? Uh, it, while I was being entertained, I loved the show Madam Secretary. And right. I see how sh- she does that week in and week out. She will go to people fence, so to speak, and she listens for an opening, something that they need or they want, and perhaps it's, it's, she can meet them there. And yeah. then that's the beginning. You know, that's the beginning of maybe yeah. um, something small today and maybe something bigger tomorrow. <laughs> right. Well, it's a great model for, uh, to look at, but then we, as citizens, have to take it off the television and into real life. Uh, maybe I could just tell yeah. you for a moment how I ended up doing what I'm doing, because I think it's yeah. A, because you you started you started out as a, musi- a musician, uh, didn't exactly. you? Um, but, yeah. So, so tell when us I about tell that, my story, from- yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in music, and I played percussion instruments in the Miami Philharmonic Orchestra uh, for 12 years. And I also taught high school music. And then, 39 years ago, I founded the Anti-Poverty Lobby Results. And a lot of times people are, well, what's the connection? Music, poverty lobby, what was the motivation there? And when I look back in my life, there are a couple of experiences that pointed to a new direction. I graduated from high school in 1964, and I played timpani in the orchestra at the ceremony, And just before the ceremony began, a flute player came back to the percussion section and told me that a high school fraternity brother of mine, a year younger, had died the day before in a tractor-trailer accident in Georgia. It was her next-door neighbor, so she knew about it before I did. I always say I was 17. When I was 17, mortality was an irrelevant concept. 
But during the mourning period and the funeral and after the funeral, I went with my friend's younger brother to pick up his report card from the homeroom teacher. It began to dawn on me that maybe I had 17 more minutes or months or years. And the questions of purpose came up. Why am I here? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? Four years later, college graduation, 1968, June, Robert Kennedy's assassinated right in those days. And again, it's what is this life? What is this death? Why am I here? What am I here to do? No answers, but the questions are getting clearer. Nine years later, I always say I'm a little slow, I'm invited to a presentation, 1977, on ending world hunger, put on by the Hunger Project. And I go to this thing thinking, well, hunger's inevitable. What do I know? I'm a musician. I mean, it's inevitable because there are no solutions, because if there were solutions, somebody would have done something. But this is what I'm thinking. I go to this thing, and it's obvious right away. There's no mystery to growing food or clean water or basic health. I'm not hopeless about the lack of solutions. I'm hopeless about human nature. People will just never get around to doing the things that can be done. But there's one human nature I have some control over, my own. And my questions, why am I here? What am I here to do? So I get involved in a big way. This is the end of the story. In 1978, 1979, I speak to 7,000 high school students where I live in Miami, Florida, classroom by classroom by classroom. And before I go into the first class, I read statements from the National Academy of Sciences Food and Nutrition Study calling for the political will to end hunger. So I ask 7,000 students, what's the name of your member of Congress? I don't want to know if you wrote them. I don't want to know if you met them. Just the name. Out of 7,000 students asked, 200 could answer correctly. That's fewer than 3%. Over 97% couldn't answer. And so results grew out of this gap between the calls for the political will to end hunger on the one hand and the lack of basic information on who represented us in Washington on the other. And so it's, it was quite a journey, but, uh, you know, now it looks like all I do is citizen em- empowerment and political activism, but my start was in music. So let me ask you this, and I love your story, and it's, and it's inspirational. Um, and, and, and I know you hear the but coming. For the person that says, um, you know, uh, I'm taking care of two kids, I'm working two jobs, uh, you know, they don't care about me anyway, you know, they're just in it for the money, they're not public service anymore, all of that sort of stuff. What do you, what do you say? Well, I mean, here's the thing, uh, and uh, let me say it two ways. I will be at a lecture and someone will come up with me to me and say, look, I have two kids at home. There's just no way I can really get involved right now. Someone else would get up and come up to me and say, you know, I have two kids at home. I've got to get involved for them. So different people need to do different things for themselves. But, you know, if, if someone's really got two or three jobs just to put food on the table, I get it. 
But most people, I mean, we live in a society where binge-watching TV shows is a thing and spending hours on Facebook is a thing. And for a lot of people, I don't have time. It's just I don't have time to do something that I believe won't make a difference. Uh, I just don't yeah. want to be thwarted that way. And I'm saying, so let me give you uh, um, a, another example. Um, one of the groups that results lobbies on, uh, on behalf of, is the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Uh, it's a global program, and globally, uh, the Global Fund and its partners have saved 27 million lives in the last uh, 17 years since, since it started. It's a big deal. I mean, my main message is is you can make a profound difference on big issues with your voice as a citizen. There's more messages after that. But anyway, President Trump called for a 31% cut to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria for this year. Results volunteers got 153 Republicans and Democrats to sign one letter to the t- leaders of a key appropriation subcommittee asking them t- to protect the global fund. And the subcommittee and the full committee agreed. Now, frankly, it's one of those, in the government shutdown, it's one of those uh, six departments that's not been finalized and not been fully funded yet. So we don't know the answer. But what I'm saying is, if it once this government opens up again, it's very, very likely that the president's 31% cut will be a 0% cut because citizens, you know, they said, you know, uh, they don't listen to me. Well, no, I'm going to give it a shot and see if they will listen to me, you know, rather than giving up, jumping in. Well, I remember when uh, George Bush, uh, you know, Jr. Uh, was talking about uh, slashing Social Security and uh, this, the congressional uh, or the White House switchboard got shut down. So many calls came in and he suddenly stopped talking about that. So, exactly. you know, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, our voices do matter. <clears throat> yeah. Well, the title of your le- the, the title of your lecture uh, is um, "Are Shouting in Silence the Only Two Options: Bringing Bipartisanship and Transfer- Transformation to Citizen Activism?" Are you rejecting the resistance movement, saying that it's the wrong way to go? Well, here's the thing. I- I've actually done this talk four times in the last week and all over the place. And I always say at the beginning of the talk, advocacy is on a spectrum. Uh, And I'm going to talk about one point on the spectrum. It's not better than other points on the spectrum or worse. It's just another point. So the work that I do, and I'm talking here about bipartisanship and transformation, uh, is not resistance. That's another point on the spectrum. It's not a better point or a worse point. In fact, you know, without the resistance movement, um, Obamacare would probably be gone. But because people spoke up, you know, it, it was protected. So I'm not rejecting the resistance movement. Uh, I'm not saying it's the wrong way to go. That's not true. It's just not my way. Uh, you know, when the You know, the resistance movement has at some level at its core anger about, you know, wrongheaded decisions and 
et cetera, et cetera. And I just wouldn't have lasted 39 years with anger as the motivator. Um, I, I, and, I totally get that. Yeah, you, bur- you, yeah. you burn out, you know. Exactly. Um, so I, I, I have to ask, um, what are your thoughts on the effectiveness uh, of the women's marches? You know, we just had the third one, I think, this past weekend, um, you know, in response to Trump being in office. You know, you any just, thoughts? I mean, do you – What's the huh? thing? You know, whether it's the women's march or whether it's the big climate march a year or so ago, the the issue is not – there's anything wrong with the march? No, it's great. But we got to keep marching into our member of Congress's office. We can't say that. Well, I marched, a, a, you know, a year and a half ago, or in this case, a week ago. Um, I'm done. No, it's kind of more like the beginning. So I right. celebrate the marches. I then urge people to keep going and not stop and wait yeah. for the next march. Yeah, it's almost as if you have to, you know, get be in their face, you know, like with yeah. the sit-ins outside yeah. their office and and stuff like that. You know, it, it's a, or the I'm thinking about the people who uh, went up to some of Trump's cabinet in restaurants and right. uh, made their, you know, made made sure they they knew the effect of things that they were doing or didn't do. You know. Right. Well, um, see, let me let me just, if I could, I alluded to the main messages from my talk, and I want to just go through all three. One is, you can make a profound difference on big issues with your voice as a citizen. The second message is, you probably haven't, because of your sense of powerlessness and resignation about politics, especially federal politics. And message three is, if you connect with an organization that's committed to dissolving the powerlessness, you can make a profound difference on big issues with your voice as a citizen. And um, confronting people in restaurants is fine. I mean, it's not my style. It's it's another piece of the resistance. It's fine. It's just not going to probably end up to a profound difference on big issues uh, with my voice as a citizen. That's a longer-term uh, strategy, uh, and uh, and so and, and, and it's also an it's it's also coming from anger too, you know. Yeah, um yeah. And and and, and, and if like I, you said, you know, we're yeah. If I can interrupt and just say, if I say I'm coming from love, that doesn't mean that I go into a congressman's office and I'm automatically filled with love. No, as she, uh, you know, as she said in that little excerpt, uh, releasing fear. And centering myself in love, you know, you have to work at it in a way. I mean, I do anyway. You know, I, I, if I one of the key parts of uh, of meeting a member of Congress is to find something to thank them for, to find something to mm-hmm. be appreciative of. I was leading a workshop last June and on a, another group on overturning Citizens United and getting money out of politics. Woman raises her hand. She says. Oh, you you don't know my member of Congress. You want us to find something to thank them for. You must you obviously don't know my member of Congress. And I said that's why this is a spiritual practice. You have to go deeper and find something, you know. You have to do some more research. So it's it's not right. like the love version is a slam dunk easy all the time because you might have a member right. of Congress that's done a bunch of wacko things and 
you know, finding something to appreciate in them, it, it could be a challenge. Right. So. Um, you like to share quotes that you describe as laying out our predicament, uh, pointing to what keeps us stuck. Yes. Um, did you want to share share I a do. couple of those I, and tell I us? I love these. Yes. This first one is from Francis Moore LePay, who wrote Diet for a Small Planet uh, 40 years ago. But in a more recent book uh, called Getting a Grip 2, she wrote, Our real problem is not a heating planet or rampant malnutrition. We only have one real problem, our own feelings of powerlessness to manifest the solutions right in front of our noses. And so I love that line. We only have one real problem, our own feelings of powerlessness to manifest the solutions right in front of our noses. I I kind of feel like it's liberating when we get to let the ugliness out. Let me do this other one. This is from Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig, who works on getting money out of politics. He said, we did a poll and found that 96% of Americans believe it important to reduce the influence of money in politics. Isn't that great if that was the end of the quote, but it's not. He said, we found that 96% of Americans believe it important to reduce the influence of money in politics, but 91% don't think it's possible. That's the politics of resignation. But the politics of resignation gives you a perfect strategy for winning. How do we thaw that resignation? Because once we do, I think we have a real chance of winning. Well, the groups that I coach create structures of support that are geared to thawing the resignation. And so um, let, let me I'm going to finish with this one a quick story of a group that's not up for thawing the resignation. I was meeting with the head of a really big group. You would know them really well. Your listeners would know them really well. He was the head of uh, organizing. And he said to me, we can't let our volunteers write letters to the editor or op-eds because they'll get it wrong and misrepresenting misrepresent the organization. Well, so much for just powerlessness. Uh, but one of the groups I coach, Citizens Climate Lobby, their volunteers had 4,200 letters, op-eds, and editorials published in 2017. So one group saying they'll get it wrong and misrepresent the organization. The other one saying, what do we got to do to help them get it right and then give that to them? And as a result, they right. end up with 4,200 letters, op-eds, and editorials. I call the other group uh, – advocacy malpractice, that if you really want to get involved, you could very easily volunteer with a group that practices advocacy malpractice. And, you know, that's what something I like to help people guard against. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you could, you know, if you really wanted to, it would be easy enough to provide talking points, you know. Yeah. Um, well, well, uh, now you founded the anti-poverty lobby results 40 years ago. Um, what kind of progress has results made using the bipartisan approach, and or, or you find that you can still make it work now? Yes. Well, let me give you this example. And so my first message is you can make a profound difference on big issues with your voice as a citizen. When results started to lobby in the early 1980s on child survival issues, UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, was reporting that 41,000 children around the world were dying every day from largely preventable, underlying preventable things like uh, measles coupled with malnutrition or dehydration brought on by dirty water or not washing hands and whatever. And so results played a really key role as in advocacy on that reduction in uh, child deaths from 41,000 a day uh, in the early 80s to 15,300 a day. And in the New York Times six years ago, the former head of, uh, Debbie, deputy head of UNICEF, Kul Gautam, said, quote, to a great extent, it was because of the receptivity created by results that the U.S. funding for child survival increased so dramatically, and that led many other countries to come on board. So I'm just trying to say uh, it was volunteers who ed- got educated with the help of the organization, who met with their members of Congress, generated media that really began that increase in funding for simple things that could save kids' lives so that it, it dropped from 41000 a day to 15300 And that's an, one example of profound difference on a big issue with your voice as a citizen. Yeah. Just you know, on a side note here, talking about um, that success and, you know, the fact that it, you know, affected children and health, it made me think about what's happening with the water in Flint. And it's amazed me that nothing's been done in Flint. Um, I guess I wonder, do you have any insight on um, where things are down there? I mean, is there hope for uh, I mean, I know this is kind of throwing you a, you know, a yeah, kind yeah, yeah. curveball. Uh, well, let me let me give you a, a quote from years ago from the head of UNICEF, the late Jim Grant, and I kind of tie it back to Flint. He said, "Each of the great social achievements of recent decades has come about now. Social achievements like the civil rights movement, the women's vote." Uh, he said, "Each of the great social achievements." of recent decades have come about not because of government proclamations, but because people organized, made demands, and made it good politics for governments to respond. It's the political will of the people that makes and sustains the political will of government, end of quote. And I always say, well, if the political will of the people is a bit asleep at the wheel, then the political will of government will be a, a bit asleep at the wheel. And so, uh, you know, we, uh, if we're going to sit back and wait for the governor to do something or sit back and wait for the mayor or county commissioner to do something, it's 
mostly not how it works. It's the political will of the people that makes and sustains the political will of governments, or as the head of Citizens Climate Lobby says, members of Congress don't create political will. They respond to it, and who creates it is us. And, of course, we may not – you know, uh, I think it's 90 million Americans didn't vote two years ago when President Trump was elected. 90 million. Uh, It's it's, – yeah, we're we're not all that we could be uh, as citizens. Well, well, well. Let me. Well, and 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 I hear you, and and I agree. I, I mean, you know, too many of us are, like you said, we're uh, we've, we're sort of resigned, and we sit on the couch and we entertain ourselves rather than being good, you know, citizens, and you know, getting out there and doing what we can, or joining a group that can, you know, make a difference, that sort of thing. I wonder if. You know, I, I I guess this might sound pessimistic or paranoid, but do you think it's the government kind of just ignoring the will of the people? Because it it seems like the will of the people kind of just uh, swirls down the drain. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, let me. See. I, I missed a little, but I think I got the bulk of your question, and. It's. It seems a little like a lot of times I'm asked, well, do online petitions matter? I mean, does it make a difference if I sign that petition uh, on my computer? And Paul Loeb, who wrote Soul of a Citizen, once said to me, you know, those petitions sent to Congress, they're counted, but they're also discounted. And they know how little effort it took to uh, to do that, and how it could be easily ignored because the sender is probably off on something else. But when we write a letter in Results or Citizens Climate Lobby, or I coach the the Quaker Lobby, FCNL Friends Committee on National Legislation, uh, it's kind of like we send our letter with our hand cupped to our ear, waiting for the response. And if we don't hear the response, uh, you know, we reach out. I, I just did a, a, a presentation. I did a talk and Q&A on Saturday for about an hour, and we had a break. And then after that little break, I led the group. This was on a retirement community in northern Florida, Penny Retirement Community. And we, I coached them through writing a letter to their member of Congress, Republican Congressman Ted Yoho. I took home 22 letters with me, and, and uh, I mailed them to one of our staff in Washington who will hand-deliver them uh, because it takes weeks for a letter to get through to Congress these days uh, for fear of um, uh, what might be uh, put in the letter. Uh, in terms of uh, poison, yeah, anthrax uh, or something, anthrax yeah. and such, yeah. And so, uh, but uh, the letter they wrote was asking for a meeting to meet with them and to discuss the issue they wanted to discuss, not write a letter and done. No, write a letter and follow up and schedule an appointment to really take right. it to another level. 
Well, maybe maybe what I maybe my question uh, the signal dropped out and you and you didn't yeah. um, actually hear it. Um, so let me just say again: Do you has it always been this way, or do you think it's worse now in terms of um, if the will of the people is really ignored? Because that's what it feels well, like. I think you know. I mean, you look at all the progressive things that most people want, um, yes. and, you know, it, it's just, uh, you know, and, and people don't even know their progressive ideas, um, but, but you know, our people in Congress, because they're bought and paid for by corporations, um, right. you know, they, they can ignore it. Well, they can, so long as we're letting them ignore it, or said it said another okay. way. If someone gives, if so and so is our member of Congress, and gives them a bundle to put wacky ads on TV to get reelected six weeks before the election, and we let that run the show, then yeah, it'll work that way. But if we're awake to what they're not doing or what they should have done or whatever, it almost doesn't matter how much money they get to put nonsense ads up. Because we're paying attention and know that that's baloney, and that's why. And we're going to hold their know, feet to the fire. Yeah, and one of the groups I coach is called American Promise, and their focus—they're uh, not old. I mean, they're like three years old as an organization, and a year and a half with their grassroots groups. Uh, I think they had 17 meetings with the, their member of Congress in 2017 and then their second year they had 137 meetings i mean that 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 kind of growth and their focus is overturning citizens united that supreme court decision that said uh, you know uh, uh, corporations are people and money is speech and you can't uh, deny speech so unlimited money is fine and so they're working right. really hard to to turn that around, and um, yeah, really important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so let me um, let me ask you something else. Uh, in your book, reclaiming our democracy, healing the break between people and government, you share a prayer that the uh, the results group in Atlanta used to shift negative right. attitudes about their member of Congress, and that resulted in a transformation. Why don't you tell listeners, um, you know, or maybe even share the prayer with us? I will. Uh, you know, might um, you know might be inspirational. Okay, great. I will, and I am finding it right now, and I found it. And so let me tell the story. It's from some years ago, and it was in Atlanta, Georgia. And the congressman, uh, the, the late uh, Pat Swindoll, uh, had, was one of very few who had voted against famine aid for starving Ethiopians. And the, the guy who's talking about this, he says, you know, it's like if you're watching a sports team uh, that's terrible, you're sitting in the stands with bags over your heads because you're so ashamed uh, to have uh, to be rooting for such losers. Uh, and uh, he says, um, uh, w- w- uh, if politics were a sport and we were sitting in the stands watching our congressmen playing on the field, we would be wearing those bags over our heads over the shame we felt for having him as a representative. Our thoughts and discussions about him were very negative, and we pretty much wrote him off, figuring our best chance was that maybe he would be defeated in two years. 
but at Sam's suggestion, we began to shift our thinking on our congressman. There was this prayer that a volunteer in Houston, Newton Hightower, had written for his member of Congress, someone he had similar difficulties two years earlier. We adapted it to our congressman, and we added Congressman Swindoll's name, and it went like this. And here's the prayer. Thank you, God, for Pat Swindoll. This is the guy who wrote it against famine aid for starving Ethiopians. Thank you, God, for Pat Swindoll. We know he's a good man who wants to do right in the world. We know he struggles with the same problems we do, closing our hearts to those who don't agree with us. There are no thoughts or feelings that he's had that we haven't had, and vice versa. We pray for all of us to learn compassion for people in our country and far away, for rich and poor. We pray that Pat and we will be less frightened of each other. We pray our focus will be more to love and appreciate him and less to change him. Help us remember that sharing love with the world is the highest contribution we can make and will lead to children being fed and the planet surviving. Forgive our righteousness and anger. Open our hearts and minds to find the next expression of love for Pat that he can receive. End of quote. And he, the, Steve was talking about that prayer, and he said, you know, we would read that prayer at our meeting, and we'd go, yeah, right. And then we'd <laughs> read it the next time, and we'd go, yeah, fat chance. And then we'd read it the next time, and after a while, it finally started to sink in. And they would meet with their congressmen. At, he used to call it Chat with Pat Sessions, the congressman. They renamed it Spat with Pat because every time we they met with them, somebody was had a bone to pick with the congressman and got in some kind of argument. But they'd come with a handshake and a smile and tell them some new information about a program that made a difference empowering the poor. And two years later, they go to his office, they bring a TV and VCR to show him a segment on the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. The congressman is sitting with his on his desk with his chin uh, under his uh, uh, knees, watching the video, and they ask him if he'll co-sponsor this micro-enterprise legislation, and he says, I'd be happy to. He says, I have a column. Do you think you could write something for my column in the newspaper so we can educate the public? And, you know, and Steve says, all of a sudden, I was ghostwriting for a congressman who two years earlier had voted against famine aid for starving Ethiopians. I think we were the the only Congress uh, group in Georgia who could get liberal Congressman uh, John Lewis and conservative Congressman Pat Swindoll on the same bill. And I want to I don't think I can find it fast enough. You know, it's really great, he said, to see people as possibilities rather than as obstacles. And wow. It's, 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 what, it's, a great, uh, what a great story. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's well. I mean, it, I, I, you know, I was as I was hearing you, it, it felt like um, a tenacious love. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. You know, 
Yeah, tenacious yeah. love. Um, yeah. Well, you know, after your time with Results, uh, the first group you coached uh, was Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, you know, we've certainly been inundated with bad news on climate from President Trump. Um, the Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, are they taking the bipartisan route, and are they having any progress? Yeah, they are. You know, it's almost like they had a two-part strategy in a way. You could say uh, a kiddie pool strategy and then a dive in at the deep end strategy. And in some sense, and I don't want to belittle it, their kiddie pool strategy was at uh, House Climate Solutions Caucus. And when President Trump was elected, there had been 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats on that brand new Climate Solutions Caucus. But back then, four Republicans had either lost their seats or retired, and it was down to six and six. After the president was elected, they enrolled 39 more Republicans and 39 more Democrats for a total of 45 and 45 on the Climate Solutions Caucus. So there was these people who got to get in the kiddie pool and see it wasn't so terrible. And then the real work is their legislation it was introduced last Congress at the end, and I think it will be introduced, I think, any day now. Uh, and what it's called is a carbon fee and dividend, which is a steadily rising fee or tax on carbon fully refunded to the public. So I go to the, the gas station, and I see that the cost of my gas is going up, but I get a rebate or a dividend or a refund of this tax. I see that my heating bill is going up, but I'm also getting this check, uh, that this dividend, that the tax is going nowhere but back to the public so that I can maybe get a more fuel-efficient car or maybe I can do something about improving the efficiency of my house and having it like leak less hot air or cold air or maybe even at some point solar panels on my car. So that was introduced by, I think it was three Democrats and two Republicans, um, you know, and uh, 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 that kind of bill that's frankly calling for a tax, but the tax is fully refunded to the public. I mean, you saw the riots in France a couple of weeks ago. That was partially because of a gas tax, but then the money didn't go back to the public in that case which is why they, right. they have this other strategy. Um, well, uh, so, well, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm, ha- I'm happy to just hear that Republicans are getting on board for anything yeah. related to climate. I mean, you know, well, the it, top it seems one like, isn't, but uh, a lot of others are. Yeah, the top one isn't yet, but a lot of the others are, and that's really the way you need to work it right now. Well, now you're also working with the Quaker Lobby Friends Committee, uh, Friends Committee on National Legislation, in their campaign to prevent nuclear war with North Korea, uh, and with yes. American Promise and their in their work to overturn Citizens United. You mentioned them a little bit. Um, yep. Tell us about that work or any other groups. Um, you know, you think listeners yeah. might want to hear yeah. um, if, that good things are really happening. If I could just start with this, you know, if people are interested in the global or domestic poverty, they can go check out results.org. 
If they're instead interested more in climate change, they could go to citizensclimatelobby.org. And then the two you just mentioned, one is the Quaker Lobby, fcnl.org, Friends Committee on National Legislation, fcnl.org. And, you know, frankly, they change their issue every year. So last year they were focused on um, preventing nuclear war with North Korea. This year, they're focused on repealing the authorization for the use of military force, or AUMF. Just after 9-11, Congress authorized the use of military force uh, in 2001, and they never repealed it. So President Bush and President Obama and President Trump can go all over the place using military force under this well, what would it be, 17-year-old authorization, no, 18-year-old authorization for the use of military force from Congress called an AUMF. Uh, And so they're working to repeal that, saying, no, Congress can authorize the use of military force again if it needs to or wants to, but it shouldn't have this open-ended authorization from 18 years ago that any president uses any time. So that's what they're working right, that's on. Dangerous. And, they, and they, you know, I coached them uh, two years, and in three years they had 92 chapters all around the United States. And you can go to fcnl.org, N for Nancy, or national. Uh, and then American Promise is even younger uh, with their grassroots groups. And they had their first legislation introduced a few days ago on overturning Citizens United with a Democrat and Republican lead sponsor. That's the difference. Like last year, they had 170 co-sponsors on a bill, and only one was a Republican, and most Republicans didn't consider him a Republican. And this time, they have a a, a bill that's introduced by a Democrat and Republican. Uh, and so yeah. it, yeah. It's and again, in all of these cases, these groups have a nationwide telephone conference call or webinar every month with guest speakers and Q and A. They'll maybe have some training on the call. They'll have an action sheet and an action every month. They hold your hand really, and really help yeah. people move from kindergarten to first, third, fifth, ninth, twelfth grade and beyond as a citizen. And and, and, and you know, people can people can take what they learn from being a part of this group and uh do something themselves or oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, take yeah. that knowledge to those take skills, that knowledge yeah. to another group. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. um I'll just mention those again if people want to Google them, they're easy enough to find. There's results uh to end global and domestic poverty. There's Citizens Climate Lobby, uh working on reversing climate change. There's American Promise, uh overturning working on overturning Citizens United and the FCNL. Um, well, they were working on preventing war with North right. Korea, but now they're working on, uh, you know, repealing preventing the, authorization. the pre- yeah, rep- you want to repeal yeah, to make it so the president, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. 
Well, Sam, um, we're uh, we've come uh, you know to about the end of our time here, uh, but this is this has really been great to hear you um, tell you know regale me and listeners with um, uh, the way things can. End. response that can still happen in spite of uh, the administration we have, maybe in spite of what our attitude has been about, you know, the government failing us. Um, you know, I, I think we just have to, um, you know, make a commitment uh, we want good things to happen. You know, we, we can't expect uh, you know, we we can't just leave it to somebody else to always do. You know, uh, we we just have to find something we feel passionate about, and you know, get in there and get our hands dirty. You know, uh, and, did, and we um, don't have to do it the, alone. Yeah, yeah, it, because and, that's when we feel helpless. You know, that's exactly. when we feel disempowered. Uh, that's doing something that's making progress. Then I think that totally shifts our attitude. Exactly. Do we have time for me to share the quote that I always share at the end of my talks? We certainly do. I'd be glad to hear it, as I'm sure listeners would. This is would. from George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman. This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature, instead of a selfish, feverish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I've got hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. End of quote. I love that quote so much. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And, you know, in that, I, I think, is a reflection of the sacred feminine, too, as yes. is being in in service. You know, um, yes. and uh, I, I think I think that's an important um, value or quality that we don't hear enough about. Um, you know, the importance of being in service and how that can fill us up. Uh, yes. it, you know, I, I think and and really make a difference in how we feel about ourselves as well as you know, how it can um, also impact exactly. others. So, well, Sam, I, I want to thank you for the work you're doing out there in the world. I want to thank you for taking time to be in, in my anthology and coming on my radio show, The Times You Have. Um, you know, uh, you know the fact that, uh, uh, you know, we can connect the dots and the sacred feminine because I think so often when people hear sacred feminine they think about archetypes they maybe think about deity but they don't connect the dots with the values that help us reconcile our spirituality and our politics and that's why I wanted I wanted you to be in the anthology because I felt you were helping people connect the dots between spirituality and politics well thank you and thank you for all that you do 
Thank you, Sam. And I'm, I'm sure we'll be in touch. And, uh, you know, please, uh, as you can, let people know about the anthology Awaken the Feminine. Uh, we'd all appreciate the, our wisdom being, uh, you know, reaching, uh, you know, new corners of the globe. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. All right. Good night. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, hearing our guest, um, uh, uh, Sam ha- uh, Daly Harris tonight, and uh, uh, with an, that important message. And before you go, uh, there's another message I'd like you to hear, and this is from Joe Carson. So please um, hang in there with me just a little bit more. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. you've been listening to one of the trailers for Dancing with Gaia. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at dancingwithgaia.com. I want to thank you listeners uh, for tuning in tonight and especially for their patience um, you know, with the sound glitches that we're, we will soon have remedied. me, uh, Gypsy Jean. Uh, she has just created a brick and mortar goddess temple in Utah, and you will want to hear that story. It uh, is pretty fantastic. Yes, we do have a goddess temple in Utah. Well, that about does it for me tonight, uh, dear listeners. Uh, thank you for your input. Uh, thank you for your emails. Uh, thank you for your listener loyalty. It is all gas in my tank and has kept me doing Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, for more than 13 years now. 
uh, hope you're staying warm wherever you are and uh, you're enjoying the winter and uh, you are working out your, uh, you know, your authentic self and who uh, you are going to be in 2019. Uh, and we will see the best version of yourself you know, in the, in this, uh, you know, the springtime with the coming of the sun. Well, that about does it for me tonight. Uh, I hope you will uh, be back again with me next Wednesday. Until then, may Isis embrace you and with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.